Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As the days get shorter and the nights get longer, my friends at The Pleasure Chest will be diving deeper into cosplay and even more BDSM than usual. Follow at Pleasure Chest Stores on Instagram and Twitter for up-to-the-minute info on their free weekly workshops on kink technique in New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago. The Pleasure Chest will be featuring some of their favorite kinky superstars and leather gear on their site and social media all month long. They're also offering 20% off their most popular kink features from October 25th till October 31st, only at PleasureChest.com. Pleasure Chest stores are stocked with costumes and accessories for Halloween. All stores will have candy out and hidden boupons around the store with delicious discounts on October 30th and 31st. Have a safe, creepy, happy Halloween from Wire People Into That and the Pleasure Chest. And now, on with the show. It still feels like summer, which I'm thrilled about, um, but we are getting into autumn. And for that reason and many more, I am so glad to have Laura Westengard on my show. How's it going, Laura? Great. I'm so excited to be here. Laura is here because she is my friend and has lots of really interesting things to say about things that are very interesting to me and I think probably my listeners as well. Um, But also because she has written this new book, which is called Gothic Queer Culture, Marginalized Communities and the Ghosts of Insidious Trauma, which is not a title that you can say without a sort of Elvira voice. And Laura is an associate professor of English at the New York City College of Technology, City University of New York, a.k.a. CUNY, a.k.a. the word that my phone always wants to autocorrect cunt to. Do you get that? Happens to me a lot. You run the gender and sexuality studies department? It's a program, not a department. So yeah, I'm an associate professor in the English department. And um, that's where our gender and sexuality studies program is housed, but it is interdisciplinary. So we have classes across various departments, not just English. Cool. And I'm the point person for that. So I, I pull it together. Hell yeah. Laura, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about this book, which, unless I'm mistaken, is your first book. Yes, it's my first book that I have sole authored. Gothic Queer Culture came out of my dissertation work, actually. So when people ask me how long I've been writing it, I tell them um, at least 10 years. Great. (laughs) What was your dissertation on? My dissertation was called Queer Monsters Within. Yes. (laughs) And it was a, a similar topic that came out of actually sitting back and reflecting on my years in graduate school 
and suddenly realizing at the end of the road that there was a theme amongst all of the work that I had done, all the writing I had done in my classes, and uh, it was it was gothic. <laughs> I was always writing about monsters and ghosts, and it was also queer. So uh, I started to think, what what is what is pulling these two things together in my mind? And uh, one of my fields of specialization was trauma studies. And cool. so when cool. these three I, things came together. cool about trauma is <laughs> it's cool for trauma to be studied. And important and, and necessary. And, you know, in that vein, when I was writing this book, I, I had some, my editor, for example, said, is there any way you could make this more fun? <laughs> I'm like, well... <laughs> I can try, but it is it is trauma studies. So um, yeah. fun is not the first uh, word that people use when they describe me. Maybe <laughs> maybe catharsis. Yeah, for actually acknowledging that trauma exists as a step towards creating a world that doesn't traumatize us quite so much. Yeah, catharsis, uh, visibility, just opening up a conversation for things that are so taboo in our culture. And that is true of both queerness and trauma experiences. People, you know, paradoxically, we're not supposed to talk about uh, trauma in public, right? That's something that's reserved for our private reflections, our therapeutic um, or interactions. Or just stuffing away yeah, into repression. the sewers mm -hmm. and just not acknowledging, which is fine it'll just stay there i'm sure <laughs> oh, it'll pop back up oh, no. it will haunt you right? oh, no. <laughs> so yeah we're encouraged to maybe repress our traumatic experiences or it's not polite conversation but what's the paradox there is that trauma demands expression yes and so when people have an experience that's traumatic often um even though it's escapes our ability to discuss it in a traditional narrative way we're also driven to try to understand it through language through storytelling through artistic creation what i noticed when i was looking at various instances of traumatic expression these kinds of productions that come out of traumatic experiences that there's often a gothic element a mm. sort of a, a darkness a use of certain gothic tropes that i talk about in the book in order to try to access this traumatic experience that is really by definition inaccessible mm. they often people often describe trauma as unspeakable and it's not because it's you're not supposed to speak it necessarily but it's actually impossible to get at the full truth of a traumatic experience for various reasons and so many people say that that's that's frustrating and people pathologize that that kind of inability to discuss your own traumatic experience but i say also you know the flip side of that is that it drives creativity yeah people when they can't narrativize an experience they try other ways to get at that experience. And so you end up with a lot of creativity that comes out of the traumatic wound. I started writing this book to trace, like, what is that connection between Gothicism and trauma? And since I also do queer studies, I started honing in on the queer cultural production that uses Gothicism in order to get at trauma. And as, as we know, queer folks are, ex they experience trauma in life and we it's have dangerous. creativity gushing out of our <laughs> trauma wounds 
everywhere. Exactly. Glittery, <laughs> gushing trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Queer folks often experience bounded traumatic events, very traditional kinds of traumas that we understand violence in the world. But in addition to that, there are daily experiences of trauma that are built into the structures of our society that that we call these days microaggressions. And that's what you call insidious trauma. Exactly. In the study of trauma, historically, when the field started to be developed, people focused very exclusively on these sort of traditional bounded traumas. So, you know, natural disasters, mm. b- being nearly killed in a train accident. Or like shell shock, right? Exactly. From, from war. War, rape, and things where people's uh, sense of safety and ability to exist in the world feel threatened. But that doesn't really get at the microaggressive traumas, the daily traumas that we all experience. And, and that hasn't really been studied that much in, in trauma studies, only more, more recently. Often those bigger traumas are dismissed or we're asked to stuff them away or not speak about them. But the thing that makes microaggression every day death by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. trauma the, what makes it insidious is also that constant dismissal and then we start to self-police exactly right and think i'm the problem i'm making too big a deal out of this i'm too right. sensitive i need a thicker skin this is normal and natural and i should just get over it right and like a migraine it is quote unquote normal right if we think (laughs) about um that it's commonplace uh, yeah exactly if we think about normal as something that is just the norm it is the norm for people with marginalized identities in whatever way they intersect um that creates their experience in the world to have small instances of like a sense of marginalization or dehumanization or or, you know devaluing their Mm. you know input in culture or their ability to exist in the world these are things that are you know disgustingly normal yeah (laughs) um and yeah you're right insidious trauma is compounded by the fact that it's not recognized as trauma Mm. so not only is it something where you feel it you notice it it accumulates in your experience your daily experience in the world but also when you try to voice it the reaction of people around you is stop being so sensitive can't you take a joke right this is just the way things are yeah and uh, to not have your trauma recognized is another kind of trauma that is layered on top of the original experience i don't know it feels like there's another layer of trauma not to mention a burden of emotional labor of trying to be the cassandra and the coal mine Mm -hmm. like screaming that this is this is really this is bad for me this is bad for us sometimes when it's bad for marginalized people it's about to be bad for everybody else and we're like trying to (laughs) warn people or at least be like fucking like listen to us when we say that this is bad when we don't have the support that we need we 
I don't know, we express it in all kinds of ways, like addiction or, mm-hmm. or perpetuating cycles of abuse, right? Maybe even like horizontal violence also, where we're like taking out this trauma on one another yeah. instead of paying attention to the people who are maintaining the circumstances that allow this trauma to perpetuate. Yeah. Those people don't experience any consequences. And meanwhile, we're all like yelling at each other and taking it out on each other. And that is by design. That's how right. trauma keeps itself alive. Right. By internalizing the structures that have traumatized you in the first place and then policing others exactly. by those rules. Or you get a little bit, you have a little bit of privilege in one way and then you throw other people more marginalized people under the bus in order to make yourself feel safe this is something i try to write about a lot and this even that is a survival strategy yeah in a culture where you know we're consistently told that we don't have access to power or we don't deserve access to power so if you internalize the structures of power and then are able to sort of get one step up within that structure a lot of people will take that as a way to survive in the world Uh, yeah i would argue that in the in the long run it doesn't make them any safer absolutely not because you're just creating more dangerous circumstances for more people and then also other people are gonna fucking step on you on their way to the top yeah yeah so that's one of the main goals of my book to displace the focus from interpersonal like individual interactions Mm. to look at how the structures of oppression the institutional practices are the primary um, perpetuators of insidious trauma that we're all functioning kind of within this structure that is built to be oppressive to certain folks and we need to pay attention to that large-scale issue and not blame each other one-on-one necessarily like we we can call each other in and and Mm. make sure that we're all sort of paying attention but our critical thinking needs to extend beyond the individual level because that really is like a a neoliberal narrative right oh yes (laughs) it's asking the individual to be responsible for changing the world when the the structures the powers that be are have built the world to exist the way that it is in the with this hierarchical structure and that's always going to be a failing enterprise but it does occupy us right it occupies our attention trying to like just be brave or you know yeah um, be empowered buy this thing that will empower you right yeah laura this is all extremely my shit (laughs) and i'm so glad that that you're studying it in the particular way that you do and you know i am a total theory head i love theory books i especially my favorite kind of theory books will sort of take highbrow or intellectual theory or modes of analysis and use them on something that is maybe considered lowbrow or lower brow, your book completely exemplifies that, where you take genre fiction of all kinds, mostly horror, some movies, some TV shows, definitely a lot of performance art, um, contemporary queer performance art, which mm-hmm. was really exciting to read about 
people who I see all around me m making this work and, and to see your analysis of them and contextualizing this with a lot of more ancient texts as well. I'm probably biased because you're my friend and because I love just digging into all of this like heady theory stuff, but I think that this book is really accessible to a wider audience. I think that if anybody is interested in queerness or horror or trauma or just thinking about queer art, especially the dark side mm -hmm. of, of <laughs> queer art and cultural production, I, I think that they would love this book. So they should buy it. They should buy your book. <laughs> What's the best place for people to buy it? So it is on Amazon if we want to go that route. Um, it is also on the publisher's website, which is University of Nebraska Press. Cool. And I can also share a code for 40% off. Oh my God. So, so we can. So many percents. <laughs> such a high percent. Such a high percent. <laughs> and um, it should be in bookstores. I have a book release event coming up at Blue Stockings. Hell yeah. I feel like a lot of what you're looking for is work that confronts and undermines insidious trauma and not just comments on it but it sort of takes like a satirical approach or even just in the sense of trying to call attention to it and make people uncomfortable yes and you make a really interesting case for true blood failing to do that for a lot of different reasons and i love true blood and as i was reading it i was like oh man this is true <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Like, all of this is true. And that doesn't mean that I won't still enjoy my trash. I think to, you know, answer this, I may have to back up a few centuries. So Please. let me start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> when I say gothic queer culture mm. what you know what do i mean by gothic i right? guess i guess i could have asked you that first <laughs> i guess i just assume that people listening are like gothic of course but no it's it's true goth is not just what you shop for at hot topic exactly and, and there are a lot of ways to be gothic and mm. goth is a subcultural aesthetic yeah in the way that we think about you know hot topic though i mean goths would be mad at us for <laughs> saying that but the way that i use it is that back in the 18th and 19th century starting in england but also extending into the united states there was a new and exciting and controversial genre of literature um, some people wouldn't even deem it literature it was smut in sure. a lot of ways um, that became very popular and, and it, what was that genre? <laughs> it was gothic fiction <laughs> and so it was a feminized genre which is really interesting it was there were women writers there were women readers and that was part of why it was devalued but also it dealt with the supernatural mm. it dealt with um, things that were irrational it was fantastic and it's in the course of its narrative it indulged in structures of like relationship structures family structures and behaviors that were considered unacceptable in polite culture at the time so uh, people would read it almost like someone would read a romance novel today sure. um, and maybe like hide it a little bit yeah. it's interesting to think about the context of that time and the idea of something like queer desire or chosen family 
it might as well have been supernatural. Right. And <laughs> the only way they could really talk about it was through supernatural metaphors. Right. So um, there was there was something always vaguely queer about the content of these novels, but the structure of them was uh, like a strange hybrid of genres and ways of writing that ev- that people thought was monstrous. They actually called it uh, like a monstrous a- aesthetic. But what's important to know is that even though people read these novels and were titillated by them, mm. they were inherently conservative in that anything that happened throughout the course of the narrative, we might you know, be excited by mm-hmm. sort of um, incestuous narratives or different kinds of sexualized power relations. But in the end... They it, always get punished. They always and get punished. And order is always restored. And order is restored by usually a, you know, monogamous heterosexual pairing through marriage, which is, you know, a traditional narrative arc. Like, that happens in, even in, like, sitcoms often. And right? fairy tales. And fairy tales, yeah. yeah. And But what is the purpose of fairy tales, for example, is to morality teach a yeah. lesson yeah. yeah and so the the point of, maybe also the point of sitcoms <laughs> could be argued sure i mean think about um mid-century sitcoms like oh, yeah. leave it to beaver or the brady bunch there was always a lesson yeah yeah <laughs> sorry no i'm just thinking about the lessons that people were learning in the 90s from friends but i can't i can't even go there <laughs> That's um, for another truly podcast. horrific okay but go on go on <laughs> There was this idea that you could fetishize the supernatural and the queerness of the gothic content in those novels, but uh, because that was so scary and disruptive, it was simultaneously titillating but also uncomfortable right. so that made the restoration of order even more desirable oh man and so it was teaching people that you could fetishize the content but then it always had to be sort of fixed in the end and that was the the right way to be is the normative that was restored by the end of the story it's interesting to think about the concept of cultural appropriation and how that how it sort of follows that narrative where people people who maybe have like conventional tastes want like i'm thinking specifically about the cultural appropriation of sexual subcultures where people want to like wear a leather harness as part of like quote unquote post fetish fashion but they 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 want like just enough of the glitter just enough of the grit to give them a, a thrill, but then there always has to be some context of restoring the norm. Right. And that has a lot to do with risk, right? Who mm. People aren't willing to adopt an identity or, um, you know, a, a cultural mode to the extent that it's going to make them sacrifice their safety in the world or, right? And so um, that ties back into the trauma of the folks who, you know, don't have another choice. That's an authentic expression of, you know, who they are and how they want to be in the world. And and with that comes vulnerability and risk and, you know, insidious trauma that infiltrates your existence. Uh, I mean, you know. I mean, it's worth it to be true to yourself but that's also part of the reason that queer people or people who are part of, say, leather subcultures get frustrated by cultural appropriation because they, you know, it's like, we don't, this is who we are. And we're not just parachuting in and having a thrill and right. then returning to a point of safety and stability 
we live in darkness and danger yeah and we're we're like you know we've like settled in and like gotten comfy in it but that doesn't mean that it is that that destabilization does not affect us exactly people say the first gothic novel was horace walpole's the castle of otranto which is 1764 so which is super incesty yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah the, what I look at in the book is the way that the metaphors that were established in the 18th and 19th century filter into the way that queer cultural producers, queer artists and mm. writers deal with queerness, talk about queerness within structures of oppression, um, whether that's drawing attention to the traumas, drawing attention to the problematic structures, or just, you know, indulging in the darkness. And that, I would say, is, is a, you know, the subversive aspect of gothic queer culture. It's when queer folks have taken this thing mm. that was originally used against them to mm. police and contain any non-normative gender or sexuality and saying, you know, like the term queer itself, like, fuck you. Yeah, I am a monster. Yeah, what could be queerer than <laughs> what you are describing? Um, taking, taking that and transforming it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a reappropriation of something that was, um, you know, used to make money really off of the policing of queer folks, which in itself is an insidious trauma. Of course. Right. But that doesn't mean that queer folks haven't used those kinds of exposures, right. And taken them for themselves. So if we think about, I don't know, are you familiar with the celluloid closet? Yeah. Yeah. Talking about how, okay. So over the course of 20th century cinema, queer folks, have appeared in one way or another but usually they're considered the the sick sociopath or the or murderer the cl- or, the or the clown the, so starting with the, the the queer as like the funny person that we laugh at mm. then the queer as like a monstrous predator and like then, um buffalo bill in silence of the lambs right or um mrs danvers mrs danvers <laughs> in rebecca yes these depictions of queerness across the decades have been damaging yeah but that doesn't mean that queer folks haven't gravitated towards them and and taken that as some grasping at visibility right and, yeah we and, love you know, mrs danvers. yeah i love mrs <laughs> i think i told you that mrs danvers is like and like a root for me i, I literally mean, I, yeah i ran into you on the <laughs> bus and was like oh i just went to see rebecca and you just like fucking swooned <laughs> like you were clutching your mistress's laundry yeah. to your breast <laughs> I, I, I identify with mrs danvers mostly yeah. <laughs> i'm the creepy person in the high victorian collar <laughs> you know, walking around quietly with like extended staring <laughs> eye contact and I will burn for my love yeah of course <laughs> you know my my exploration of gothic queer culture is that sort of reparative redemptive mm. um, use of reappropriating something that was originally designed to police queerness and when I get to talking about true blood I'm seeing that you know, the reappropriation of queerness that queer folks have used in, you know, through ever since it was created. I mean, it's queer folks have always existed and have always sort of like looked for representation that they can take for themselves and, and use to sort of 
support their existence and survive. So like, for example, an example of something that you mentioned a second ago of the kinds of monster metaphors that were established in early Gothic literature. So like I took a Gothic literature class in college and we talked about that was sort of the first place that the concept of the vampire as other was introduced to me. And we talked about a lot of different otherness in that class. We, we talked about the other as just straight up like Eastern European. Right. I mean, which is what, you know, Dracula and, Transylvania and ethnic other, which and which is all these around migration and exactly um, specifically Jewish migration. Well, you from took Eastern Europe. you took the words right out of my <laughs> mouth, right? That was the thing that blew my mind the most. As a Jew, that vampires <laughs> were about anxieties about Jews that you like. They look just like everybody else, but I mean, I guess I had I knew about the idea of Jews having like horns and tails and that kind of thing or the the Jew as as monstrous but but the idea of like anti-semitic fear Mm -hmm. uh being part of the construction of the vampire was really interesting to me especially then when you put it next to like dandyism or Mm -hmm. gender transgression Mm -hmm. which is definitely also something that you see in a lot of depictions of vampires from right Dracula on I mean I'm sure there's earlier ones then, of course, the other major one, which you talk about a lot in this book, is the idea of vampires as vectors of disease. Right. And the way that that has played out in terms of queerness and disease in the late 20th century is... Right. In the context of the AIDS crisis. Exactly. And, yeah. And also, I would add that vampires have alternate modes of penetration (laughs) that's what makes them particularly queer is that um their their penetrative acts cross gender boundaries oh yeah they you know create their own holes (laughs) they don't even work with the holes that they're given so uh they're they're really transgressive and queer in and way. they're interested in fluids you're not right. supposed to be interested in yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, one thing that i point out <laughs> is like this amazing scene in bram stoker's dracula yeah where um dracula gets into mina's room mina is this you know paragon of british modern british womanhood right and uh, he gets into her room and and her fiance comes in and discovers them in an act and they're kneeling on the bed mm. And uh, Dracula has has penetrated himself. He's created a hole in his own breast, <laughs> and then he f- he's forcing Mina to suck from his chest, from the hole that he's created in his chest. He's uh-huh. hold- she's, he, her head is being held to his chest, and there's fluids dripping down her nightgown. So it's and and that is also super incest. And I don't. I'm trying to think of a word other than it's, that's that's also super incest. Well, it's non-consensual. Although there's also the element of seduction yes. and glamouring. Mm-hmm. Uh, glamour is a verb right. and succumbing. But it's also incesty because, like you know, she's like feeding at his breast, right. and it's like it's like gender transgressive yeah. incest because that. I mean, that's also like vampire lineage is 
chosen family and like mm-hmm. a created kinship yeah. you know in true blood they say my maker and they say like that you like sired another vampire right so right. it's also it's also like a a strange form of breeding yes which you know i do talk about bareback culture yes. in the book oh that that's yes uh, maybe we can get to that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and even bug chasing and right. lots of that is maybe the darkest part of the book actually that stuff is stuff is really dark the like yeah literal death it, fetish right yeah. um which is its own form of queer kinship um, yeah yeah a really dark form yeah. of queer kinship yeah so what but anyway like, to return to you know dracula and mina it's that what when they do their fluid exchange mm-hmm. uh, so intimate it's so intimate really a sign of trust (laughs) (laughs) and um they're bonding they're fluid bonding yeah and they and what that gives them is access to each other's thoughts yeah so how intimate can you get right you get into each other's minds by this fluid exchange and um that really speaks to something else that's queer about uh vampires and monsters often especially if we look at um Mary Shelley's Frankenstein's monster, his, right. the creature in that novel is like as an archetypical monster, is this hybridity mm-hmm. of monsters that they not only disrupt or transgress gender and sexuality, but even the notion of self and other. Right. They transgress the boundaries of humanity because they're monsters, but also Frankenstein's creature is created by many different people genders races even animals and humans all sewn together in this one form and dracula is you know he's more discreet as an individual but he survives by ingesting the blood of others so in that sort of cannibalistic mode Mm. you become what you eat right you are what you eat (laughs) and so monsters are you know they exceed even the boundaries of self and other when he and mina are able to see into each other's minds where does dracula end and mina begin (laughs) i feel like i have a sense of what is queer uh, about that not to mention kinky and we will get into more explicit conversations about how bdsm cultures weave into all of this but what's queer about sharing fluids and knowing each other's minds i mean Mm. that's just straight up romantic (laughs) and i think of that as queer romance but i'm queer so like technically you could have a fluid exchange that creates a deep bond that is straight i guess (laughs) but like what is queer about that particular moment from bram stoker's dracula i think in that particular moment like you pointed out there's the the breastfeeding tableau yes but i think that when you're having a romantic or erotic exchange with a monster ah and a monster is inherently transgressing the boundaries of gender race humanity self and other what what is that orientation right (laughs) monster sexual yeah who who are you fluid bonding with right like is it is it really heterosexual i mean maybe for readers on the surface they're seeing mina and dracula as a heterosexual pairing but if we dig deeper 
the nature of monsters means that they can't be located. They can't be pinned down. They slip out of our grasp mm. when we try to frame them with our traditional understanding, which is primarily binary, of gender and sexuality. And so they're queering humanity. <laughs> so both monsters and queers are slippery, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, in the right circumstances. Cool. <laughs> cool, man. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but a very powerful sexual root for me was a scene in the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula movie, which mm. is trash. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Mina scenes are great. Shout out to Winona Ryder. The sort of progression of the story, both in the book and in the movie, is first Dracula comes for her friend, who... Lucy. Lucy. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mina is sort of, as you say, like a paragon of like modern English womanhood and Lucy is like a little bit more what I remember about her is that she has all these suitors and she's like the object of heteronormative desire and she's like wealthy and yeah. super pretty and just and a little bit of like a bimbo well so I can speak to the novel more than the movie yeah I haven't seen it in many years both of those female characters in yeah. the book are lessons, right? Okay. So this yeah, is right. a kind of con conservative Gothic mode where they're teaching women how to be. Right. For Mina, her she's has the promise of being a very appropriate British woman. Her modernity, her use of technology, uh, I see, is risk is a risk factor. Okay. And that's the thing that gets her in trouble. Like okay. she gets herself into the situation when she should be, you know, at home, not being involved. But that's what puts her at risk with Dracula. Yeah. And Lucy is a little bit slutty, right? Totally. So she definitely has all of these heterosexual love interests. She could get settled down and get married, but she's a little wild and she's, she's kind of like she's, toying she, with yeah, all of these different flirty, men. Yeah. yeah. And so she's the first to get taken down in that book. Right. Man, that's like the slasher movie right. idea as well that like the slut goes first yeah there's a scene in the movie where lucy the slut it's a stormy night and she is increasingly under the mind control of dracula who has like had his eye on her for a while and i think has been like staring into her window and like coming to visit her at night when she's asleep mm -hmm. and so this stormy night she's like walking barefoot through the garden because he's calling to her and mina is like Lucy, what are you doing? And is like kind of chasing her through the garden. Sort of like the scene that you were describing of, of Jonathan Harker coming across Mina and Dracula in an unnatural act of blood nursing. Mina comes across Lucy being like ravaged on like a stone bench mm -hmm. by Dracula, who is in this like grotesque wolf aspect. 
and she's just like fucking loving it and they're mm-hmm. just like running like animals and Mina's horrified and I think that Dracula like sees Mina witnessing him fucking Lucy the, I, there was something that Lucy being susceptible to Dracula because of being slutty mm-hmm. and having that desire. Because, like, Mina kind of fights it more, right? right? But Lucy's like, oh, oh, what's happening to me? And then she, like, she succumbs to him and then is just, like, loving being fucked by this grotesque creature. And I really liked that which <laughs> yeah. and so it's interesting to think about like moments like that that i loved as queer but like the other really major libido moment for me as a teenager uh was spike from buffy the vampire oh, slayer yeah. which i've always like sort of struggled with like why do i feel like these technically cis head mm couplings stories dramas feel so central to my sexuality in a way that feels very queer to me but you just kind of explained it which is that I'm here to validate those, those childhood experiences <laughs> thank you that they weren't men they were monsters <laughs> exactly so it was and more about like wanting to like desire that monstrous but and also like that sort of queer thing of like both wanting to like do it and be it that I wanted to yeah. both like desire the monster, be desired by the monster, but also be the monster. Yeah. And your viewership of that scene with Lucy and Dracula is like the perfect example of queer audiences mm. watching something that's really designed to teach you a lesson. Ah, yes. And saying, oh no, that's actually sexy. I think I'm going to take that and use it for my own development as a queer person and like you you can try to teach me a lesson but okay i'm still gonna watch this and and get off on it that's interesting too when you think about the sort of legacy of spike as like the ultimate bad boyfriend (laughs) from buffy and joss whedon has talked about how like he's a little upset when people find spike sexy because the whole point of spike was to comment on on an abusive boy and he is mm. you know like spike is totally abusive sometimes in ways that are not very metaphorical that mm-hmm. are li- that are very literal or not subtextual in the story but yeah in the sense of being like oh you're trying to teach me a lesson well i'm just gonna go ahead and uh, eroticize yeah. that and and you know and then maybe like put another layer of text on it and make it right. make it a scene like make it a consensual non-consent scene right. as opposed to a lesson about what kinds of men it's appropriate to desire or what kinds of people it's appropriate to desire anyway and i will say in addition to the queerness of the pairing like having sex with a monster it's queering behavior right it's like too queer as a verb yeah either way it's as a queer viewer you're seeing the these multiple layers of queerness that it's like lucy is into it yeah and is that queer? <laughs> is being into sex queer? Well, with a monster? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just like, she's yeah. Breaking she's breaking the rules of propriety. Yeah, well, she's and just she being a really great bad. bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks for psychoanalyzing <laughs> Anytime. Me. Okay. Dracula, Jews, vectors of diseases, 
So hmm. in what way does True Blood fail this so, yeah. test that you've sort of set up for for queerness? So so True Blood in True Blood the subtext of vampires as queers is made almost like achingly literal. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. quite literal. It's still a supernatural allegory, but it's like quite on the surface with fang bangers and mm -hmm. God hates fangs and the idea of like vampires as having these like clubs, their, you know, their right. own private clubs that normal people want to visit for a little bit of a thrill yeah. And and then and like the fight for vampire rights, vampires coming out of the coffin, right. all that stuff. So that which is like delightful, but also <laughs> maybe what what do you think? Like pushes it a little bit too far. I think what True Blood does is like take the allegory to another level. Mm -hmm. So where in the past monsters allegorically have stood for transgressive gender and sexuality, now that transgression in terms of sexuality, at least specifically is explicit it's right. overt they like you were describing they are fetishized they're sexy they're hypersexual by taking it to that level it allows the allegory to be less about the sexuality the sexuality is a given the allegory is about assimilation mm -hmm. so it's about the political aspect the vampire rights element right and so then the vampires wanting to come out of the coffin and integrate into society and get equal rights becomes an allegory for the marriage equality movement totally and um, homonormativity and homonormativity right so there are interestingly and more strongly it, at the beginning of the series two kinds of vampires there's the good vampires that want to assimilate that want to just abide by human rules they they just want to come out of the coffin drink their fake blood not mm. not feed on humans not this is all associated with like bourgeois normativity it's totally. like i'm going to buy property uh -huh. i'm going to work in a job mm -hmm. I, you know i'm going to be a proper consumer mm -hmm. by purchasing the correct mode of you know ingesting blood yeah i'm not going to tran be transgressive in that hypersexual way so there are those what I call assimilationist vampires. Yeah. And then there's the the quote unquote bad ones. They're framed as the the vampires that are doing damage to the vampire rights cause. Uh -huh. They live in nests. Totally. Right? So totally. it's more than two. It's non-monogamous. They live in these sort of nests that have their queer kinship structures. Yeah, there's there's definitely vampires of multiple genders. Yeah. They are more, often more nomadic. Uh huh. They're not as invested in norms of consumer culture. They don't hide their hypersexuality or their um, non-normative sexual behaviors. You know, I, I haven't talked about this, and maybe you can speak to this. This also intersects with sex work as a coding for mm. the bad vampires, right? That they, the ones that participate in the fang-banging culture at the club, mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. often the ones that are co coded as bad. And the humans mm. that consume them, too, are coded as disposable in certain ways. Totally. Yeah, I feel like it's sort of feels like more about sluttiness or like kink mm -hmm. than sex work per se in the sense that like a lot of those interactions don't seem to be 
transactional, although they are in the case of Lafayette and the Stephen Root character. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Who is like a lonely closeted gay vampire. He's both closeted as a vampire and closeted as gay. Yeah. I, so yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll have to think more on on how that plays in, you know. But in the sense but, of in the sense of Eric and Pam facilitating Fangoria, right, yeah, is the name uh, of the bar explicitly as a place for as like a fucking meat market, right, for mm-hmm. bad van quote unquote bad vampires to meet people who want to. But that's also interesting because bad vampires are interested in both non-consensual violence literally being murderous predators but they're also interested in consensual sexualized feeding Mm -hmm. off of people pam and eric facilitate a space that is less like come here and get murdered and more come here and find find compatible people for consensual erotic vampire play yeah and, yeah. But and they're it, they're perceived to be a threat, obviously, because people are uncomfortable with humans desiring vampires, which is like an ongoing right. tension in the show. But presumably, people are also upset about Fangoria because they assume that people are getting murdered or drained against their will, but actually, people are going there because they want it. Mm-hmm. But then it's complicated, like we were even talking about with Dracula, with like what does consent mean if right. you are a monster that has the power to glamour and seduce people. To return to the transactional nature, the vampire blood, it has monetary value. That's true. That's true. And so vampires can either choose to exchange that in a way that's empowering to them where they're making the choice, or they are also disempowered by human folks who tie them down with silver and steal their blood in order to sell it. Yes. It crosses over into like a drug allegory. Totally. The problem with this next level of allegory that they're working with, when you take uh, a metaphor and you move it to the next level, like I was saying, it's a, the the, sex, the sexual transgression is a given. And so they're using it to talk about rights, like mm-hmm. a political discourse. It kind of assumes that what the previous metaphor was the idea of transgressive sexuality has been solved is is already solved it's it's not a thing we just okay that's fine so now we need to worry about civil rights or vampire rights you know assimilation and how to best achieve those political goals yeah and what i write about in the book is that if we take it back down another level they're also assuming that they can use the allegory of integration Mm. in order to make their case in this show and that rests on the assumption that racial integration that civil rights is complete that that like solved we don't have to worry about that it's something we can just use as as a metaphor itself which then complicates part of what you talk about that really stuck out to me the way that the characters identities intersect with their their like literal identities intersect with their allegorical identities tara who is a by the end of the show a black vampire the way that she's oppressed for being a vampire is an allegory, but the way that she may be treated in the fucking South yeah. for being a black woman is 
literal and it just it makes it like murky and convoluted even the characters who are literally queer like Lafayette is that that's something that is like a stable foundation that we can build an allegory on top of yeah yeah exactly and the show it isn't you know two-dimensional there are there are some intersectional aspects it's it's not all problematic but it does seem to be a return to the kind of conservative mode in in a certain way mm. that um, it is there to use the supernatural and its queer associations to achieve a social goal to teach a lesson and, and the lesson in this case is homonormativity exactly it is don't be a bad queer. You're ruining the cause for everyone else who just wants to integrate into the existing structures of society that are really oppressive structures. So like don't live in nests with your queer chosen family, but like buy property and be a stable consumer. Don't be into all that weird sex stuff. Mm -hmm. Get married and have it be a traditional type of monogamous two-person marriage that lives in a house that you achieve by working at a job to buy the property yeah you know we just it's that it's that narrative of we're just we're just like you we just let us in let us into your um existing institutions and um we won't cause any trouble and what that does is it re-marginalizes a whole other population within queerness so to return to your earlier comment about how people police each other within marginalized communities Mm. um it creates a new kind of internal hierarchy where there are the queer folks and some would say they're not queer in a sort of an anti-normative politicized way Mm. the people who want to be um, part of the existing structures and then there are the people who are seen as troublemakers. And this isn't a new phenomenon in activism since Stonewall, right? Since the gay rights movement emerged on, on the scene publicly, there's always been a division. In fact, at the Stonewall uprising, the Mattachine Society put a note on the window of Stonewall saying to, you know, to our gay brothers and sisters, please be peaceful, maintain order. There's always been a kind of divide about those who want to achieve rights by integrating into the existing structures of society and those who want to disrupt, disrupt, be more revolutionary, be um, anti-normative, be subversive. Or just like, like unleash their trauma in the sense of we're, tired of being traumatized so we're gonna start fucking throwing bricks yeah in these cultural popular cultural manifestations of queerness and gothicism like true blood Mm. there's no simple way to characterize it Mm -hmm. i think that through our conversation there are problems that we can point out with the re-reappropriation of gothic queerness in for the purpose of capitalist you know pursuits like true blood is there to sort of make profit um and it is um created by a white gay man yeah yeah alan ball right yeah and it does have some maybe some assumptions and lessons that we might think critically about Mm. but there's also lots of other stuff going on. There's no, I, I just, I don't want to 
oversimplify it by saying this is good this is bad totally gothicism in queer culture works in a lot of ways in a lot of complex ways and one of the things that the gothic offers us is a way to not have easy answers it resists Ooh. the easy answers like queerness yeah <laughs> and so you know the i started this by saying that i'm interested in looking at like why is gothicism and queerness and trauma why are they like intersecting over and over again in the things that i study i think that's part of the answer right that traumatic events resist characterization mm. they exceed our ability to talk about them in um, traditional ways gothicism also the supernatural elements they are shadowy mm. they're effervescent right mm. they're elusive those are the things that are that like you said slippery that slip out of our ability to really like pin down you can't mm. you can't pin a ghost down mm. <laughs> queerness too queerness specifically for folks who use queer in a kind of like a political resistant mm. way it's about not having a definition but just resisting the assumptions of normativity or mm. the compulsoriness of mm -hmm. normativity and so that too is just about you know disrupting about uh, deconstructing and all of these things do that in similar ways and so they they come together to make this particularly um, useful mode for talking about trauma but also not for not solving it it's not about trying to solve or cure someone from a traumatic experience because that in itself is a conservative mode it's like totally. you're imagining that there was some perfect whole individual that existed mm. before the trauma mm. and then that has now been corrupted right that has been ruined which is the word that they use for mina after she drinks from dracula's breast that she's ruined right, right or which i mean that's also the corresponds to sexuality exactly and so uh the, it's this idea that all right well if we do the right thing you can get back to this mythic state of perfection and wholeness and that is an illusion too because what that state stands for is a sort of universal ideal of the norm oh so my god i'm sorry to do this but it's you're de you're describing a a maga hat right now <laughs> right exactly <laughs> okay okay moving on <laughs> and so like what i'm interested in about putting inserting the gothic into conversations about trauma is that the gothic resists closure like i'm not mm. interested in the end of the gothic novel where everything is solved sure i'm interested in the middle of it where everything is is disrupted yeah. and you and you don't know what's happening and it, everything's sort of like exceeding your ability to interpret and you know making you think twice about your assumptions of even the nature of reality that that's a place where where i think queer folks can rest and like create and have all of this amazing stuff that um doesn't try to repair Mm. trauma it doesn't try to repair anything it doesn't try to force closure in the future it's just this moment of uh nowness mm. that is slippery contingent it's messy that's really helpful advice for writing horror and science fiction to be honest which is something that is on my mind these days but i want to come back to that 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, 